The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Welcome to the Liberating Arts Definition Channel. I'm Rachel Griffiths, Assistant Professor of English and Director for the Integration of Faith and Learning at Sterling College in Central Kansas. I'm hosting a conversation with Shan Ray, who has done a variety of significant work in different disciplines. He teaches leadership and forgiveness studies at Gonzaga University. He is also a licensed clinical psychologist, as well as a poet, novelist, and author of short stories. His creative writing has received numerous awards, which I'm not going to list, but I highly recommend his short story collection, American Masculine, which was mentioned in a list from Esquire magazine titled, Three Books Every Man Should Read. I just thought that was really interesting and that everybody needed to know that. <laughs> um, Shan has also published scholarship on forgiveness and servant leadership. In addition to having many intellectual accomplishments, Shan is also a basketball player, and he played in college as well as in a professional league in Europe. I'm excited to talk with Shan today about psychology and the liberal arts. So Shan, I'm wondering if you can tell us about your own edu education. I know that you have an MFA and a PhD, but I don't know what your undergraduate studies is in. Um, and then if you could talk a little bit about um, how you made your way into higher education. Thanks for the question. Great to be with you, Rachel. So good to see you again. <laughs> it's really good to see you too. So I think I was happily lost in high school. I didn't really know what I wanted. Um, my dad and mom, I would say, trained my brother and I to get good grades. So that was of benefit, even if we were, yeah, I was definitely very resistant to school. I sort of, I didn't realize it back then, but I lived much more of an intuitional or um, circular versus linear oriented life, you know, love the wilderness, I would say from a distance, loved poetry, loved music up close. And so the walls of the school felt very confining. And literally, as a high school person, probably to me, I spent a lot of time thinking this is just totally inappropriate, you know. And I thought things like, we could learn all this in an hour a day, easily. Mm -hmm. Okay. And and, uh, <laughs> and you kind of see education go somewhat in that direction when you start seeing all these different variations. Like if we'd had those back then where I could maybe go start some college classes or maybe do an apprenticeship in poetry somewhere or, you know, mm -hmm. it just wasn't really designed that way at that time. It was so I think I've even though I got good grades, um, I just felt disappointed in the structure, you know, the structural equation that was education in America at that time. And definitely got a lot of good things out of education. I loved a lot of my teachers deeply. However, I just thought the way it was set up. So I didn't understand that. I, I just was starting. So then when I went to college, I thought, well, I don't know, you know, my brothers had, you know, some giftedness and more of the linear math side of things. I'd taken all the math in our high school. And I thought maybe I'll go into computer science like him. And I went in and that's when my persona or maybe my ethos as a per, as an individual inside the collective of education in the world really fought me because I got in there and I'm like, wow, you know, after about a year, I really could tell this isn't for me, you know, mm -hmm. and part of it was just, again, a certain linearity, a rationality. And I think I was thirsting for mystery and again, more circular understandings, you know, I think I was also thirsting for a non, non-dominant, non-patriarchal male educational culture. Mm -hmm. okay. And and the arts usually provides that. I didn't know that yet, 
because we just didn't have much exposure to the arts as a family just yet with so much physicality and, and focus on wilderness. We we're in the Montana wilderness a lot as a family. And that's probably where the love for the mystery came in. So I then moved from computer science and I just wasn't sure, you know, and part of that was I wasn't ready yet to say, yeah, this is worthy of my deepest investment, whatever it would be, you know. And I think I was also pretty multivalent as a person, just enjoyed polyphonic life, you know. So I kind of didn't want to be in one place, but that, you know, and, and I was always, I would say, I wasn't the type that would throw away the fact that you're in college and you, you can get a degree, you know, like, so even if I, mm -hmm. even if I didn't really identify with the fields I was in yet, I knew I would get a degree, you know, <laughs> like, cause that would just be part of whatever was coming next, you know? And, um, again, it was probably my mom and dad, their giftedness in valuing education. Um, I think if I didn't have that from them, I might've just, you know, slipped away, <laughs> you know, but it was so solid in them. And so I ended up in, uh, in communications and then organizational communication. I was closer, you know, definitely had an identification with people and and how, you know, to the ways of being in closeness, collective unity with people, I would say. Um, but it was also still yet, you know, I just didn't know enough about possible fields and what what maybe I should go toward. And by the end of, end of that undergrad, I was at Montana State University first. So large, well, not that large, but large-ish state school. And then went to my first liberal arts university at Pepperdine University for my last three years. And that way of doing education really spoke to me. And I think it was the blend of art, faith, and science that was profound, the way Pepperdine did that. And I didn't know that, well, there's lots of schools that that's their, their way of looking at life and learning, you know? So I felt like it was just an unfolding there. And some of those professors were just stellar. I mean, so good in so many different fields. So that was great. And then I had the opportunity because of Pepperdine, they, they do certain things that are sort of quiet. And they asked me, I had a group of men that we had met together for about two and a half of those three years. And we had a vision kind of back to the polyphonic, you know, and the vision was about faith and servanthood towards the marginalized in society. So we really built out uh, groups on the campus that ended up really thriving and you know, being highly attended. And then we built out, uh, time with the homeless in Santa Monica and in Los Angeles mm -hmm. outside the midnight mission. And, and all, you know, there's about 15 of us and everybody was completely devoted. And also just gracefully as we graduated, um, it was one of those sort of fascinating things where of that group, almost everybody was the, ended up being the top student in their area ended mm -hmm. up being, yeah. And they had, the university has these two things like uh, what they call, they have man of the year, woman of the year, which is sort of like an all around thing. And then they have like the, um, a Christian service award and literally for like five semesters in a row, these guys all mm -hmm. got, got all of those, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, we didn't even know about those things. We just, we're just living our lives, you know, and then, mm -hmm. but the university does some special things there. So at one point they pulled me aside my senior year and said, you know, we really appreciate, you know, your, your life and investment in us. We'd like to invest in you. Um, we'd be willing to pay for a master's degree. I never thought about graduate work. I was, you know, at that time playing basketball and going towards professional basketball. And maybe I would think of it later or something, but, but that kind of changed the trage trajectory. I did go play in Germany. And then I, and my, that was my wife, Jennifer, and my first year of marriage, great year together. Also huge learning. Um, that year, I remember first time I encountered Black History Month was, was on the Army base in the town I was in in Gießen. And the U.S. Army base there, the bookstore had like, I don't know, like five or six huge rows devoted to Black History Month. Uh -huh. And almost, you know, one pretty large row was Martin Luther King Jr. So, you know, you, all you have is time when you're playing professional basketball. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's a, you certainly worked thousands and thousands of hours to get there. But once you're there, you know, it's practice, uh -huh. practice two hours per evening, eight to ten 
couple games per week, you know, three days off on the weekend, all day long, you know, off, <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. you're practicing that. So, um, so there was time, just lots of time. So I decided I would read all of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian, and all wow. of Martin and and all of Martin Luther King all in the same year. Okay. And I didn't know until later, really, the connection between Bonhoeffer and the Black Church in America. You know, so that's kind of fascinating that those two were, yeah. Yeah. you know, coming down into my life at that time. Right. And just a great pairing. I mean, their writings are such an incredible pairing of writers. And, you know, that's stayed with me up until now, you know, where just, you know, these days I'm reading all of Bell Hooks and all of Cornell West, you know, for example. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's really an echo of those two original writers too. You know? And there's a lot of that. If I'm in fiction or poetry, similar, I just, I love the deep dive. And if I'm in science too, I, I love the deep dive. And, your, so, and I've always loved it being polyphonic again, you know. So, but I didn't know how that worked really. I just thought, okay. I discovered after going through, you know, deciding on a master's degree, what would I do? Well, it might be journalism or history or something on the streets. You know, I really considered Jen and I considered just serving the homeless and not doing any degrees and any further degrees or anything. Um, might be writing, but I quickly thought if it's writing, we wouldn't have with my writing, we wouldn't be able to afford enough to eat a hamburger. So, <laughs> you know, I've sort of had a decent knowledge that from the books I had read that that's a lifetime devotion and it may not in my case be best to try to rely on that for mm-hmm. staying alive as far as mm-hmm. like yeah. Ba- yeah. basic living and so <laughs> and I could see other other friends going for that and and you know just a difficult road of like whether you're a barista or whether you're got a job that you that is mind-numbing and so you can't write or you know mm-hmm. I kind of foresaw all that, thankfully, and thought, okay, I'm just going to, and I started to discover I love 10 and 20 year projects, which is strange, but part of my Czech Bohemian heritage probably mixed with German. And finally, I started discovering that. So I said, yeah, long road, let's do the long road. Finally, fell in love with system psychology, working with couples, marriages, families on generational trauma and wound patterns you know, and, and make, you know, forming and shaping people into the transitional generation into healing patterns. And that, that just was like finding lightning Mm -hmm. and like, like you actually have a hand on the lightning all the time. Yeah. So that was the first time I thought, Oh, this is, this is real. This is really education in the, in the work of everyday life. Yeah. I felt it in working with homeless. I felt it in, the depth of Germany and reading Bonhoeffer and MLK. But then it was like coalesced, you know, like, okay. So went through that all the way through Pepperdine master's degree and then PhD up in Canada, University of Alberta, you know, dissertation was on hermeneutic phenomenology. So in the interpretive understanding of life phenomenon, you know, like, okay. and what you know, that's based basically getting at the essence or the lived experience, the lived world, the essence of, something, a a phenomenon. So the phenomenon that I studied was the forgiving touch. When you touch someone and you're trying to communicate forgiveness or when you are touched and you Mm -hmm. feel forget, you touch physically and you feel forgiven. And so I was always pretty, I recall that like, I, you know, outside of the norm, (laughs) you know, I never thought I need to go fulfill what this or that professor is doing on their research agenda, you know, like that was never, never a single thought of mine. It was always like, what, what would be fascinating? What do I, what do I want to be in? You know? And and that was it. And that was great. What a great journey. You know, then I, then I worked at a rehabilitation hospital and had rotations in neuropsychology and, and in uh, sort of behavioral and mental disorders and, and then in sort of bodily neurological functioning and, so the science and the art was kind of starting to come together, you know, um, with the scientific understanding of people. And I was always reading things that like psychologists that wrote literary things like Yalom's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Yalom's love, loves executioner. He's kind of one of the American names in existential psychology. Okay. And that was branching slowly over into, you know, Andre Debus the third, but before him was Andre mm-hmm. Debus, you know, okay. 
And I was reading that while I'm doing all this other work in science. And so it was starting to come together. Then, I, then I'm in Spokane, finally, Jen and I are settling down there. And I'm working at a healing center, a Franciscan healing center. I wasn't raised Catholic myself. I always had deep admiration for the, again, the writers and thinkers and theologians of Catholicism, you know, and just thought, what a unique mix, you know, everybody from Pierre Teilhard de Chardin to, you know, Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica to, you know, like the modern expressions of, uh, you know, liberation theology. And if we go to things like black liberation theology, mm-hmm. you know, just had always had a love. So that eventually sort of started aiming me to working at the healing center, then getting hired at Gonzaga as a professor. That's a Jesuit university. So I went from a Franciscan healing center to a Jesuit university. Okay. I have always maintained my psychology practice along the way um, and the forgiveness research. And, but in that early, early time, I wanted um to go into, you know, what I would say first love, which would be poetry. And so now is finally, it's okay. We can not only eat hamburgers, we could provide hamburgers for other people. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, now I can go into this deep dive. And that actually was helpful because all these other dives, you know, into science, social science, um, theology, you know, re- forgiveness research, genes- research and genocide, you know, all these things were really at play when I came into the MFA and then I had time and I didn't think about it as I need another degree. I just, and we ended up having, you know, one of the great MFA programs, one of the oldest ones too in America here at, in Spokane at Eastern Washington university, you know, their magazines, Willow Springs, a great long-term awesome magazine, worked on the magazine, took the classes. And I literally in my head said, I'm just going to study this for 10 years. I'm just going to do an apprenticeship here. Ten years. Yeah. And just not tell any of the professors that's what I'm doing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That was probably a good choice. (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, and so in any case I did that, but at around year six, my advisor's like, why are you still here? You know? Mm. So then I said, well, I just figured I'd study for 10 years and I'd take all the classes in poetry and then I'd take all the classes in fiction, you know? And he's like, well, you didn't want to graduate. I'm like, it's okay. I mean, I, I can, but I'm not too worried about that. I mean, he's like, well, according to us and the catalog, you got to be done next year. You know? <laughs> so I'm like, well, I, I have all the classes for fiction and all the classes for poetry. <laughs> so do you think I could do a thesis this year in poetry and the thesis next year in fiction? And he's like, no. <laughs> really? He said no. Yes, yes. And I think it's back to, you know, like, you know, the, the linear world, which we might call yeah. the patriar- patriarchal world, has a fight with the circular world, which we might call the feminine world, you know. Okay. And, uh, and of course, in science, hol- holistic health is the balance of the feminine and the masculine in full healing, you know. Mm-hmm. So when I'm hearing some type of linearized patriarchy, I'm not going, that sounds good. I'm trying to figure out how can we get, make that more circular, you know. Mm-hmm. When I'm hearing some type of over circularized feminine that often, you know, in the research it shows that, you know, that the masculine resists or does not receive the influence of the feminine, the feminine uh, resists or critiques the masculine, you know, and that causes, you know, all kinds of alienation uh, nationally and internationally. And the, the research is incredibly profound on all this. So, so when he, when he says, no, you know, I don't go, okay, sounds good. You're my professor. You know, I go, well, I'd like you to ask the whole faculty and tell me what they say. You know? And that doesn't mean he's going to do that, but it doesn't mean I'm going to go, okay, you're not. Uh, if he said no, I'd say, well, I'm going to go ask him. You know? <laughs> so, okay. so anyway, the, uh, and so that's probably Montana background, probably basketball stuff where you've had <laughs> lo- lots, hundreds of confrontations. So thankfully I'm not very worried about confrontations, you know, like, I have a decent understanding of how to make those go shape them to not be alienating or fracturing, you know, mm-hmm. um, and psychology, obviously very helpful there too. But, but anyway, then he, he asked the faculty and he got back to me saying, well, they said, yes, you know, Wow. <laughs> so, so that's the journey, right? It ended with, you know, yeah. the, thesis, the thesis in poetry and then the next year, the thesis in fiction. And so that was kind of a blessing because I literally, 
just thought I would be taking classes, but then I end up with this, you know, beautiful little dual masters in poetry and fiction, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and so, so that was neat and stayed, you know, stayed in touch with my professors that I loved there over the years. And that's been great, but that, that was kind of the whole journey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that. I love the way that, um, the different disciplines have worked together and have kind of pushed you in different directions and how, yes. um, you know, different, different kinds of, um, reading traditions, you know, that you've drawn upon, um, to, yes. you know, to get where you are. Um, that's definitely, um, the kinds of things that we are talking about in these conversations about the liberal arts is yeah. um, the connections between these, these different, different disciplines. Um, more important than we think, right? Like, Pepperdine gave me that and you know I'm forever grateful for that I love those connections um I was wondering if maybe I'm gonna I, I sent you a question about your professional life being very interdisciplinary um yes. could you tell us um about the things that you're involved in um you know, kind of on a maybe like weekly or monthly basis, you know, so I know that you um, yeah. have your therapy practice, you write, you do creative writing, you do scholarship, you teach. I don't, I never wanted like my studies or my writing to interrupt my family. So, so that's, you know, some people would be like, well, geez, how are you going to do your studies? Well, I would, if I got to spend time with my family or in when I was doing the PhD in Canada, um, I don't care if I study all night, if I partied with my wife and our friends, you know, went out and had a great meal and had a great conversation and stayed up till one, I'm ready to study the rest of the night, you know? <laughs> so, and that's like my personality, you know, yeah. whereas if I'm like, Oh, I'm studying and I not with my wife and friends, uh, I don't want to study, you know? <laughs> so, so it's kind of, I start, I, I started to know that about myself. So I don't mind. I'll catch, I'll catch up on sleep another time or, you know, so my life's still pretty much organized that way. So I, I don't have anything that starts before 11 because writing time is after Jen goes to sleep. So writing time is between 10 and one okay. most, most nights. And if I'm on a project, that'll be literally most every night for however long you know, that project is. Might be a year, two years, three years, um, depending on the project, some are longer. But, but <clears throat> I'm not on a project. I'm just feeding that life, you know, the life of art and circularity and, you know, kind of communal life with the heart or soul of people, you know, humanity, listening, being taught by them. By So I might be watching interviews. I might be watching basketball. I might be, um, you know, uh, reading, you know, but if it's a project then I'm mostly writing, but that all spreads out like, you know, over time. So, so that's how the output happened is, just, you know, and that probably also came from basketball. I mean, if you're going to be a great shooter, you have to put in multiple hours mm -hmm. per day. Mm -hmm. And you will never be a great shooter if you don't put in multiple hours per day for a long time, you know. And so that would probably be, you know, you probably need a good, each person would need a good five to seven years if you're going to have the higher, highest percentages, you know, as a shooter. Um, free throws, three-point line, you know, they have the rest, layups and mid-range and stuff. So... I always understood like, okay, I want to put in time as a writer and it was already developed in me. So, so yeah, that started probably a good 27 years ago, you know? Okay. So just add up all those hours, yeah. <laughs> yeah. lots of projects end up coming out, lots of failed ones, you know, four novels mm -hmm. that failed, you know, okay. before one was taken, you know, okay. Yeah. And 10, 12 years of rejections on stories and poems before the first acceptance. So, yeah. Um, and still plenty of rejections. I mean, we all experience that, you know, like that's, that's the great part about the arts the world of the arts is that it is vetted. It's not just everything goes or everything, mm -hmm. you know, right. it's the same thing as anything else in life. Like if there's a reason why we really love the Olympics. Not everybody can do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and the reason not everybody can do that is it takes a million hours to, to, you know, mm -hmm. to and so yeah. for admiring a Steinbeck or a Toni Morrison or, um, you know, any of the greats, Lady Long Soldier, there's been a lot of distilling, you know. And so I always admired that. I always loved that part of art and athletics and science. So if we take the, the book Atomic Theory 7, Poems to My Wife and God, that one entered in and really came out in a flash of light. Like, you know, just like many projects, some are like 
long discipline you have to put in the time and it's like it's like it's like you know pulling a thorn out of your heart or something and there's a big gap when it's, yeah there's a big gap when it's gone now those poems had a piece of that but they had also like this drive you know like you know what is it about us that wants to blame god for genocide or god for trauma or blame god for loss or blame god for grief um when in my opinion uh we should be blaming ourselves you know and not only that it's not god but god is intimately with us in all of those traumas mm, yeah. in my opinion and that kind of came out of rilke's book of hours so rilke is a beautiful writer i want to say also he experienced a lot of abandonment as a young person and then he also abandoned his own daughter you know okay and part of that was kind of the european art scene at that time but but he writes in the book of hours this gorgeous god who's also extremely distant you know so it's like a, it's like a northern european understanding rather than a latin understanding or latin american understanding of closeness and blood and flesh you know mm. europe, europe is you know we just take those two cultures one one is much more dry and cloaked i mean you got to wear more coats it's colder you know <laughs> and uh some you know that germany and Czech as well you have different nuances too you know but if we take that compared to mexico where i am right now blessing of mexico um you know even the crosses like the crosses here are full, full of color and also full of blood and also full of death masks you know mm -hmm. and the crosses in northern europe are almost always like metal and wood and very straight and you know, nothing on them a lot of times, or a very stark body of Christ, you know, not necessarily a friendly or loving body of Christ or, or, a, or a bloody body of Christ, you know. So all these understandings are starting to come together, like, what about not a distant God that, that we sort of have to wander through genocide and, and because that distant God, how could God, how could you make pain happen, you know? How about a God that gave us free will and therefore pain has to happen it's not god wanted you to have pain in my opinion mm -hmm. <laughs> you know yeah. it's it's uh a deeply intimate i'm here with you if we're going to have free will there is always going to be choices if we're going to have choices there's always the choice of evil or good and there's always also the massive blend of what's evil and what's good and shadings and a huge continuum and circularity that no one can fully understand. Um, so that's where that book just, you know, and, and yeah. I, I kind of thought like, man, these poems will have no chance, you know, because they're, I basically did research on one-to-one -one violence, tons of research on just intimate, person to person, knifings, bullet wounds, machetes, you know, torque and tension harm on the body, you know? And uh, that was gruesome and terrible, that research. Um, and then I did research on atomic theory, you know, subatomic particles, all, you know, all the way, smallest subatomic particles, all the way up to the massive expanse of the atomic universe and light. And that light is the binding principle inside everyone's DNA and inside the universe. And then you've got faith, all faiths speaking of light on some level, you know, and if we take Christianity, which I um, have a devotion to this notion of Christ, probably from Teilhard de Chardin, a, a cosmic Christ as a milieu that would that we might call love, the idea that God is love, um, and that that uh, absorbs and embodies all science, all art, all relationships, all fracture, all unison. And of course, we see that in the atomic structures of the universe. Fission is, a, is fracture, and it is powerful, but it's also not even close to as powerful as fusion, which is reunification so in a sense we could say that's a theology of uh, fusion with fission uh, accepted or absorbed inside it fracture is absorbed inside it so you can see why i got so thrilled about this yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and and then i'm like well this is just crazy it's like it, it's it can be too abstracted so all the poems are you know always like being grounded in um you know everything from milfoil to the to the beak of uh you know the blackbirds of montana all the different 50 variations of blackbirds you know and uh you know you're you're always grounding it you know in the hand of the beloved or 
you know, the lifeline of the child and placing a kiss on the inner wrist, you know, because, it, you know, there's, there can be so much abstraction, but um, in any case, then I, then that one somehow united because uh, Vietnamese American painter, Trinh Mai, our poem, my poems and her paintings appeared together in Ruminate magazine. So I just called her up while I'm in this big project. I hadn't thought about it, but friends, poet friends were like, whoa, these are heavy. And I knew that too. They're very, it's a different book. Like you read it more like a contemplation. You know? um, they were like, what can you do between these seven sections? You know, can you put like the line drawings or something, you know? And eventually I came upon, oh, wow. What if, what if Trin was interested in her paintings? Hmm. Were, yeah. Her paintings were in between it, you know? So now it's even more crazy. Like who's going to publish that? You know, because <laughs> you've seen some of my temperament and I'm not going to be like having a publisher say, well, we could do it in black and white. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. That, that's going to break the deal for me. So, you know, <laughs> and it has to be at the level that Trin, my artist loves how it appears, you know, mm -hmm. but the poems, thankfully they, they were taken very fast, almost immediately, you know, in huge sections. Wow. Six, six, you know, yeah. six different places took at least 11 poems. You know? Okay. And, yeah. and so that was strange. And I didn't know that that was even existed because you're used to sending out three to five poems. And this time I just said, well, here's the whole section of 11. I mean, if, if you might be interested in one or two, but these places would be like, no, we'd, we'd like all 11, you know? And I don't know what that's about. That's probably something about the mystic again. You know? And, mm -hmm. but in any case, I and mean, it's probably also about hunger for existential love and closeness, you know, too, I would say. Um, so in any case, then we get to the publishers and that too was totally different. Usually everything's like rejected for a long time. And then you, <laughs> and then you're like, wow. some, somehow something comes together. But this one, like it was a finalist in this one, but before a Marsh Hawk Press, before that got announced on who the winner would be there, because they do art and poems, you know, and this other place was took it, you know. So, so I was like, "Wow, okay." And while I'm in negotiations there, I'm saying, "What? What I just told you? Like, can you guys do full color? Can you do hardback and paperback?" <laughs> and they're like, "Yeah, of uh, course, we'd love to." <laughs> and I'm like, "Can you do color that my painter, Trin Mai, is the one is the one that gets the okay on? Not mm -hmm. not just you, you all, but she gets to okay it." Yeah, we'd love wow. it. <laughs> so, That's and, amazing. And, and it's incredible. Like when I look at the book now, every time you're like, wow, they did a great job. It's like the colors are perfect. They look exactly yeah. like what her paintings look like, you yeah. know? And so, yeah, that was a beautiful collaboration and all part of that unity between the masculine and the feminine again, and her history, Vietnam and America's history, you know, just bring that book alive, you know, because her, her history is, you know, her family coming from Vietnam and many people dying and, them being able to to come to America and and it preserves their faith in many ways, mm -hmm. um, and they of course preserve you know love for America even though we you know did very difficult things yeah, and, right. especially especially in pulling out when we did we basically left hundreds of thousands of people to die you know mm -hmm. and so you know that whole thing the forgiveness piece in Trin Ma's family yeah. Long, long story to say the week is uh, pretty laid out though. Pretty, I would yeah. say it's, it's loose, but I'm very strategic about the, the sets of hours, I guess. Okay. Yeah, well, that's a really um, great description of your multi-dimensional life. And then also I like the example of this poetry collection, you know, that also you know, all the different kind of research that you had to do. And then of course it's presentation yes. in terms of the poetry and the art being together. I think that's really, um, yeah, that's really amazing. Um, so I'm gonna um, bring us um, hopefully back to um, the discipline of psychology. Um, yes. But do you do you have a definition of the liberal arts um, and um, and under and um, if you could maybe articulate a little bit about how you see psychology contributing to that um, definition and vision of the liberal arts? I mean, I like how you've you have a frame of liberating liberation. You know, uh -huh. that's probably when I heard that from you. I thought that's that's probably my main definition. You know. 
okay. is that that an understanding that comes from the liberal arts in its essence should be morally existentially uh, emotionally psychologically intellectually social justice liberating you know it it should create greater wholeness greater peace in, in the terms of servant leadership um greater wisdom greater autonomy greater health um greater wisdom you know um greater freedom and greater service of life itself greater service especially of anybody that's in the margins that you know what uh, cornell west uh claims often as the wretched of the earth claiming all of us as part of the wretched of the earth but that we would be devoted to the fullness of life that the all people that are that we and we, when we find ourselves as a Richard of the earth would be offered kindness and friendship and so that's what that's how i see the little arts and and i think it just does such a great job of that because it's it's not bifurcated it is not binary if you're going to study history and science and poetry and dance and music and chemistry and atomic theory and mm -hmm. you know james cone's uh the cross and the lynching tree you know, uh you're going to have a much more holistic sense of the world if you're only going to study computer science or you're only going to study poetry that's going to be highly limiting in my opinion comparatively you know so and i, I think we have a generation that really wants that more broad more diversified uh, back to the term multivalent or polyphonic, you know, life that people are willing really to invest in that. And they're willing to receive that, you know, sort of that unity, I guess, of what we might call the substructures or the superstructures of creation or of our existence or, you know, um, it just makes more sense in a lot of ways to say it'd be good to understand more than less. <laughs> you know? and, yeah. and so, okay, and the Jesuits have beautiful things to say about that in the liberal arts, like the modest. So, okay, let's say that's a Latin term for the more, the more, you know, invest in more. But it's very specific the way the Jesuits refer to it, that not only does life offer free will, and not only is that extremely important for children, for the future of the world, for the present. And free will is incredibly important. Um, and what we do with those choices individually and collectively has great resonance. And as those choices are made in more holistic ways, it also has great radiance. Yeah. And certainly we all, we all are one step away from absolute evil i mean we don't want to act like uh we don't have that capacity you know and it's always dangerous when we start acting like no we're, we're good you know or we don't need to work on this or that you know, right, right. which you know happens a lot if we just take american life right now if we start saying no we don't need something as valid and powerful as black lives matter or the me too movement and you know it's it's close to ignorance or anti-intellectualism or anti-soulfulness you know, to say, I don't really need your opinion or your, you know, mm -hmm. your deep belief that has a great chance of healing society. Um, on any level, I guess we, we could say that. So, so yeah, so psychology inside the liberal arts, um, you know, psychology, that's, its etymology is about psyche, you know, and that's, has, you know, some history with mythology, but it also, is historically the soul, you know. So it's the, the study of the soul, the study of the breath, the study of life. And that's probably why I was so attracted to it and still am and I think always will be. That's an amazing field to be in in within liberal, the liberal arts. You know. I also love it that it houses both immense creativity and immense uh, attention to science. Mm, yeah. Both qualitative and quantitative science, both interpretive and um, more positivist science, which would be more of a reductionistic science, very helpful reductionistic science. 
if we, especially if we understand that that's one part of life, you know, but it's very helpful to know, for example, that people with higher forgiveness capacity um, have significant, in general, those, those groups of people with higher forgiveness capacity um, have significantly less anxiety, significantly less depression, mm. and significantly less heart disease. Oh. And bridges are being made to uh, stronger immune systems. So that's why the Mayo Clinic uses forgiveness therapy with everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So that wouldn't have happened without quantitative reductionistic science helping us understand mm -hmm. that that part. You know. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, now it also we wouldn't understand well, how would you enact that or embody that when you're with people as they're dying or as they're emerging from trauma without qualitative science where you're. You know, many researchers have sat down with individuals and said, tell me the story of your forgiveness and your healing from sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Tell me the story of how you changed that in your own family generations. Tell me the story of what it meant to move away from solely the need to forgive and into the need to ask forgiveness and make things right. These are, you know, these are very nuanced elements of depth psychology. So, you know, when I think of psychology it does a great job overall as with this holistic, you know, the art of life and the science of life and that that's not a binary, that that's a mutuality. And again, a polymorphous existence, if we are open to hearing it and, you know, mm -hmm. getting into it and yeah. listening to it, you know? So yeah, that's, that's probably the overall. And, you know, it sort of brings me into my own life. Like, if I had to choose only one, thankfully I don't have to, but it would, it would be working with individuals and families and couples. Mm, really? So. Okay. Cause it's, it's like, I don't really feel like the writings, I think the writing is a beautiful thing. I think beauty is an expression of people and of, and of God really and the soul of God. And so if the center of that to me is the one-on-one, -on -one, the face-to-face. -face. Um, poetry is, is for me at least one step removed from that. You know? Now, Poetry together is maybe, you know, right, right in the middle of it all, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> face to yeah. face. But, you know, that's somewhat hard to, you, you can't really access that if we're just, you know, really in psychology, often you're working on how do we heal from levels of trauma that normally are not capable of healing, you know, how, you know, so you're not really, you might bring in some poetry, but it's, it's more like how do we get from this level of devastation into an integrated wholeness, you know, after so much fracture. Mm -hmm. So, and I see that as part of the center of life. You know? And I think poetry expresses it or embodies it, you know, but yeah. So um, we've had time for probably one more question um, that I want to, um, draw attention to the project, the liberating arts and um, the impetus of the project, which was this um, CCCU grant that's called um, Between Pandemic and Protest. Mm -hmm. um, so um, what you were just talking about with <laughs> trauma and forgiveness yes. and um, all of that, <laughs> I think really ties into to this last question. Um, but um, what do you think that, that, the, liberate, that, the, that the liberal arts um, can or should contribute um, to um, pandemic and protest of so these these two things um, that we have going on the a global health crisis um, yes. and then um, these um, widespread protests regarding racism and injustice. Mm -hmm. I think it, I think personally, I've had you know under this scope of trying to go around different aspects, different parts of the world, and listen. I think that's what would be very helpful in America would be um, a deep listening to, you know, what are our best practices around the world? You know? mm -hmm. So when apartheid fell in South Africa, um, after so many years of injustice, trauma, genocide, you know, um, how did it fall? When um, the communist regime that was highly oppressive in Czechoslovakia fell due to the Velvet Revolution, and you know the members of the charter, the artistic members of the charter, writers, you know, Václav Havel, and they, you know, eventually elect democratically elect a playwright as a president. You know, how did, how did that happen? You know, 
um, the deeply honored post-World War II German government under Adenauer. What kind of reparations did they do? You know, it's vast. It's, it's stuff that we have not even considered. You know? um, they paid out reparations to every survivor of the Holocaust until the last survivor dies. You know? um, they funded Israel at 95% for the first 10 years. People don't know those things. You know? yeah. But people that are sort of understand international politics, they do. You know? um, Ellie Wiesel, the writer of Night and Dawn, um, comes to the Holocaust Museum in Berlin because they've asked him to speak. And he says, after all this, you haven't, you haven't asked forgiveness of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so pretty much with, as soon as possible, president of Germany goes to Israeli parliament to ask forgiveness. You read that speech and your life's never gonna be the same. Mm-hmm. Before the speech starts, half of our large number of Israeli parliament walks out as we would all imagine some of us would walk out too. Okay, the Ladice massacre outside Prague, um, too terrible to speak of like many massacres, like the massacre of the Nez Perce on the big hole. Um, you know, women and children burned, killed, mutilated. You know. What do people do? You know, like how, do, how do they make it right? And I think America is, is poised to listen to that from our own members. You know, if we listen to example, uh, listen, for example, to the, the ceremony, ceremonies of reconciliation and of healing from the Cheyenne after the Sand Creek massacre from the Nez Perce mm-hmm. in regard to the Big Hole massacre. And we elected democratically leaders of non-dominant culture to design a forgiveness and reconciliation and reparations long-term sustainable stance we would receive a lot of healing as a nation and that's where the liberal arts like again it's almost impossible to do those things if you're not deeply attached to the core of life which is what the liberating and liberal arts do you know (laughs) and so um yeah you know we can point out lately long soldiers book whereas which is doing that you know yeah. Book I love that book. <laughs> incredible, incredible. And, you know, but that's dominant culture yet still in America doesn't want to listen to those voices in a way that would uh, allow for those voices to lead us. You know, they're always going to, they're always going to lead us subtly, but I'm saying lead the nation, like become mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the full voice of the nation. You know? mm-hmm. And so we, so I would say we need as a culture, much greater humility. Now, we, we certainly, American culture has generated a lot of giftedness around the world. There's no doubt about that. And other countries would um, gladly, you know, rejoice with us about that as we would rejoice with them about the gifts that they've created, you know. Um, but, but certainly, we would not be accused of being a humble, listening, feminine-oriented nation. Feminine arts, you know. Mm-hmm. Circular, nonlinear, not so focused on the rational. So that we could say is where we deeply need soulful learning and listening and changing. So, yeah, even if we just take the Nez Perce, okay, they they do a ceremony every year at the big at the site of the Big Hole Massacre, and you know this is government troops back then, and you know dominant culture will say, well, that was part of the Indian Wars, and you know the to the victor goes spoils and you know those that are conquered don't get to determine what happens next well it's not quite that simple is it you know inside all governments and all military actions we have some very dignified graceful human beings and we have some that are despicable we would never want to exalt the despicable as a nation (laughs) you know but we kind of end up doing that when we act like well that's just you know, people get mm-hmm. conquered. People get conquered, you know, mm-hmm. like, yeah. well, yeah. you know, we don't say the Nazis were worth exaltation, you know. Nobody says that, you know what I mean? Like, so, right. <laughs> unless you're, unless you're wacko and need right. deep right. psychological help, you know, <laughs> so in any case, um, 
we have a problem with that as a nation just facing our shadow, you know, the shadow of slavery, the shadow of the Native American Holocaust, you know, the shadow of dominant culture dominating non-dominant cultures in America across the board, the shadow of patriarchy, the shadow of the school to prison pipeline. You know, those all require us as a country to be led by those who are, are in the know. You know. So it wasn't Germany that in the Ladice massacre outside of Prague, it isn't Germany that determines how Ladice is going to heal. The leaders of Ladice post-World War II, they asked the countries of the world to help them rebuild Ladice and the countries helped them build rebuild Ladice that was destroyed by Hitler's vengeance. And they asked the countries of the world to, to donate roses for the garden of friendship and peace. And they have their top, uh, one of their top sculptors spends her whole life, Maria Yukutilova, uh, building statues of the 82 children who were gassed to death. And these Majerus mm -hmm. gas vans, which in Russian stood for soul killers. And so you see the 82 children looking over all the DJ, which is just a, you know, a plain of grass and sort of mountains in the distance, which used to be the city, small village, you know, and newly DJs over here. And you have the garden of hundreds of thousands of roses, you know, sent by 51 countries. And then Ladice in Czechoslovakia asked the children of Germany to, to plant those flowers with the children of Czechoslovakia. If we can get to that kind of thing as a nation, you know, the Nez Perce and the Cheyenne, for example, in the Arapaho are leading us in those areas, the Nez Perce at the, at, you know, their yearly um, celebration and ceremony around the sorrow and the new life is to ask the descendants of the US military who did the massacring to come together with the descendants of those who are massacred. And then the Nez Perce invite them to walk through the dawn together holding lanterns in the dark as they come into the dawn. And then they gather in a peace and reconciliation circle. You know, so it exists, you know, the, yeah, we're just, we're just <laughs> dominant culture just can't quite do it yet because dominant culture wants to dominate rather than be humble. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, dominant cultures always have to be humbled eventually. Mm -hmm. So it would be better if we could, if dominant culture can just humble itself with the help of our beloved, <laughs> you know, non-dominant cultures. So. I love those examples that you've given and, um, articulated how the liberal arts helps us to remember those things and, and yes. helps us to um, have things to, to work towards, to guide us, um, to inspire us. Um, as we, we, would for, we would forget, we would forget it, right? Who, who can right. read night, night and not be right. forever changed? Who can read right. whereas and not be forever changed? Yeah. 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 Well, I've learned so much from this conversation, Shan. Um, thank you so much for, um, taking the time to share your insights um, and to participate in the liberating arts. Um, I encourage all of the listeners and viewers to um, check out Shan's work at shanray.com. Um, thank you again. Rachel, you're such a great person. What a lovely night. Thank you. And thank you to everybody that's out there listening. <laughs>